The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, October 23rd, 2023. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. In tonight's news... Wisconsin has officially been designated a regional tech hub, a designation that could come with millions of dollars in federal funding. Citizens in Pierce County are fighting to preserve their rural way of life. Nonpartisan researchers have released a brief on Madison's financial present and future. And in the second half, a look ahead at the government's calendar, some comments from the Women's Convention in Milwaukee, a retrospective on the War on Drugs era, and two new movie reviews. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are your headlines tonight. A bipartisan bill aimed at adding transparency to absentee ballots has passed committees in both the Wisconsin Assembly and Senate, reports the Capital Times. The bill would add optional text message updates for voters who use absentee ballots, with messages going out when a ballot has been requested and received by their election clerk. The messages would be entirely confidential and would not indicate whether the ballot had been accepted by the clerk, only whether it was received. The measure was introduced to help voters feel confident in the absentee ballot system, especially going into the 2024 election, when many voters are projected to use this system. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources announced today that more than $400 million would be dispersed to municipalities across the state to improve drinking water, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. The money will go to address a number of issues in municipal water across the state, including the removal of lead pipes in Milwaukee, PFAS removal systems in Wausau, and nitrate runoff treatment over in Reedsville. The funding comes in part from the state's Safe Drinking Water Loan Program and in part from federal funds as part of bipartisan infrastructure law. Do you reuse passwords across multiple sites? If you do, you're not alone for a Wisconsinite. A new survey from Casino.org ranks Wisconsin dead last for password security habits. That study surveyed 2,000 residents nationwide last month about how they manage their passwords. It found out that 80% of Wisconsin users reuse passwords, less than a quarter have passwords that are sufficiently long, and just 6.6% of Wisconsinites update their passwords regularly. Best pass Best practices for password hygiene include having passwords be longer than 12 characters, not using personal information in the password, and changing passwords every six months. And remember, the word password is not a good password. Good to know. The Madison Metropolitan School District announced that 28 local schools will shift their start time on November 6th, some by nearly an hour. The move comes due to busing issues, which have delayed some student pickups by nearly an hour, reports the Capital Times. The change also undoes the two-tier schedule that had been one of the expected benefits of changing bus providers earlier this year. The change had been implemented to help middle school students sleep in by giving them a later start time, but had to be rolled back due to a driver shortage. A list of the schools affected and how the schedules will change is available on the MMSD website. A series of proposed amendments to Madison's 2024 operating budget were released on Friday by the mayor and the city council, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. 
The amendments would provide a number of changes to the proposed budget, including expanding funding to the CARES program, which provides a 911 response for behavioral health emergencies without involving the police. Other proposals include funding new positions for tenant rights, prenatal care, and coordinating the review of fetal and infant mortality in the city. However, all told, the proposals are higher than the cap required by state law, which means that the city government will have to prioritize some measures over others. The city council will consider the amendments during the week of November 13th. The lacrosse-based convenience chain Quick Trip was the victim of a cyber attack earlier this month, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The attack knocked out the company's customer loyalty program and internal communications, but the company says that no customer payment or information was compromised. Corporate cyber attacks have been on the rise in the recent years, with FBI complaints more than doubling since 2018, with loyalty programs being a common target for attack due to the vulnerable personal information that is often included in them. The rank-and-file staff at nonprofit investigative outlet Wisconsin Watch have formed a union, members announced today. The union will represent around 10 of the nonprofit newsroom staffers, fellows, and interns. It'll be affiliated with the News Guild CWA, the nation's largest union for journalists and others working in media. According to the statement, workers are organizing to make the outlet more resilient and to lead by example in injecting democracy into the workplace, not as a no-confidence vote in leadership. They add that they're seeking to play a greater role in determining the structure, strategy, and finances of the outlet. Wisconsin Watch, formerly known as the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, was led for nearly 15 years by co-founders Dee and Andy Hall, who retired this summer. And now, on to today's top stories. Federal dollars are headed to Wisconsin after an official designation as a regional tech hub. These dollars look to spur growth in the state's growing biotech industry. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the details. Today, the Biden administration officially designated Wisconsin as a regional technology hub. The state beat out nearly 400 applications to become one of 31 tech hubs across the country. The designation brings with it $350,000 in planning funds and the potential for millions more in federal funding to support research and industry. It's part of a recent federal investment to expand tech centers to cities across the country. Each of the 31 hubs announced today will focus on a particular aspect of tech using that region's existing strengths. In Oregon, the tech hub will look to become a global leader in mass timber design and manufacturing. In South Florida, the Tech Hub will focus on sustainable and climate-resilient infrastructure. And in Wisconsin, the regional Tech Hub aims to position the state as a global leader in biotech and personalized medicine. The project is led by BioForward Wisconsin, a Madison-based consortium of hundreds of health and tech organizations. Kurt Zimmerman is Director of Business Engagement and Compliance for the Office of BioHealth Industry Partnerships on the UW-Madison campus, which works as an interface between medical school researchers and the biohealth industry. He says the decision will spur growth in the biohealth business and could be a magnet for future industry to come to Wisconsin. Not only do we now compete for potential funding to build supplemental programming, but this is a significant recognition that companies around the country who look at relocating to Madison will use in their determination. This is a significant pat on the back from the federal government. Today's designation comes with $350,000 of initial funds, which BioForward will use to plan a development strategy. 
In the initiative's second phase, applicants like BioForward could be awarded as much as $70 million. Sam Rickers is the Deputy Secretary at the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. He says BioForward's application for Phase 1 was extremely strong due to a number of Wisconsin's medical assets. That includes UW-Madison's strength as a health and science research institution. That also includes private biotech companies like Exact Sciences, the Madison-based maker of early-stage cancer diagnostics that's now worth more than $11.5 billion. This also includes Accuray, a maker of radiation therapy, which just this summer relocated its corporate headquarters to Madison. But the most significant selling point was the number of Wisconsin-based manufacturers like Rockwell Automation and Plexus. According to the online fact sheet, the Wisconsin Biohealth Tech Hub aims to position Wisconsin as a global leader in personalized medicine, an emerging field that tailors tests, treatments, and therapies unique to a patient's genetics, medical history, and environment. And it points to our area's already strong cluster of healthcare and track record of commercializing medical research. Rickers agrees, saying that Wisconsin is already a leader in personalized patient care that will only grow with federal support. What we're seeing is that the Tech Hub will establish patient advisory councils that have a feedback loop from the actual hospital back to our corporations, our innovative industries, and our research institutions. So they're learning real time from patient experience, and that will just further help them innovate these incredible products. According to Kurt Zimmerman, Wisconsin's regional Tech Hub is poised to draft its development plan. We're celebrating now, but this afternoon we're going to dig into phase two. I don't have a specific deadline for the proposal. I'm assuming, though, it will be by the end of the year. Biohealth in Wisconsin is organized, we're mobilized, and we are very ready to compete with any other state in the country. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Residents of rural Pierce County are fighting an effort to expand concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, in their part of the state just along the Minnesota border. The county government denied them a moratorium on CAFO expansion, but citizens are trying to work together to come up with a solution that preserves their rural way of life. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moran has the story. Family farm advocates in rural Wisconsin are pushing back on concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, as the livestock industry becomes more concentrated. They have met with resistance from local officials. Hundreds of residents of Pierce County nestled along the Wisconsin-Minnesota border are concerned about a proposed expansion of CAFOs in the county. Danny Akinson with a group called Grassroots Organizing Western Wisconsin, or GROW, asked county officials to put a moratorium on CAFO expansion. That moratorium did not pass. In its place, the county decided to create a groundwater advisory committee, which will be studying the effects that CAFOs can have on our groundwater. Similar efforts at halting CAFO expansion have failed in other Midwest and Plains states, where advisory groups have also been formed, and where CAFOs have the potential to pollute groundwater. Large corporate-owned farms say their operations are more efficient than small family farms and are simply meeting a growing demand. Akinson says advocates are trying to work with local officials to at least slow CAFO expansion. Known for dairy farms and cheese curds, residents of Pierce County towns such as River Falls, Spring Valley and Ellsworth 
want to preserve the rural, pristine way of life the area is known for. A lot of people come here looking for that rural way of life that you would not get in a place like the Twin Cities, for example. CAFOs have been cited for a host of environmental problems as they expand across the country. For Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Mark Moran. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. The time is 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan research organization, has released a brief on Madison's 2024 budget proposal. They find that Madison has, quote, a vibrant local economy and a largely healthy city and largely healthy city finances, unquote. Despite these assets, they project financial challenges in the city's future. This afternoon, WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke to Jason Stein, the research director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum, to learn more about their findings. Thank you for joining me, Jason. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So to start things off, we know that Madison is facing a fiscal cliff. What is causing this structural deficit? Well, essentially, you know, the city is having fairly rapid growth in spending in recent years. And under the mayor's proposed budget, for the third year in a row, spending would go up by roughly 6%. And that reflects in part inflation. You know, city government is very labor intensive. And as you've seen, you know, some worker shortages, rising wages for workers, the city is increasing salaries to try and keep its employees, fill its vacant positions. And so that has some upward pressure on its costs. And then most of city government, at least the core services in Madison are funded by the property tax. And the property tax is is limited by the state. The growth is limited by the state. And so it might be growing, you know, in any given year, three, four, five percent. And so there's just a gap between how the city's costs are rising and what its, you know, main revenue is doing. So you mentioned the property tax levies. Are there any other ways that the state legislature has blocked some of the city's revenue? Can you walk us through the different policies that are getting in the way? Well, I mean, the notable thing this time around is that the state approved in the budget and related legislation known as Act 12, a historic increase in state aid for local governments. And it's You know, the main type of state aid that is being increased is called shared revenue, and it's mainly through a component of shared revenue, which is known as county and municipal aid. Madison's county and municipal aid is going to go up by roughly 60%, which sounds like a lot. It's going to go up by about $3 million. So that might sound like, you know, a huge amount of money. However, you know, the city's overall general fund budget this year is proposed at more than $400 million. You know, this increase from the state is less than 1% of the city's budget. And on a per capita basis, it's about $11 per city resident, which is actually the smallest increase per capita of any community in Wisconsin. And there are 1,848 municipalities in Wisconsin. So the city did not benefit 
hugely from from this historic increase in state aid. That's a drawback both because I think the city hopes to do better under that legislation and also because you know, once you do a historic aid package to municipalities, the chances that you're going to do another one anytime soon at the state level go way down, right? We, when, we're, when we do things that are historic, we don't typically repeat them right after that. I also saw you mentioned in the brief that Madison has a significant amount of assets compared to other major cities across the state outside of the shared revenue. For example, how would that compare to, say, Milwaukee or Eau Claire? What assets do we have that they do not? We do have a lot of property wealth in the city that we can draw on to fund local services. Again, the problem is just that to really unlock that, city leaders would need to go to referendum because under state law, property tax revenues are capped each year at the rate of new construction in a community. In Madison, we tend to get more new construction than the statewide average, but it still tends to run in the 2%, a little over 2% each year, whereas, you know, inflation has been as high as 8% in recent years and will probably be something like 4.5% this year. This fiscal cliff was a major talking point in the last mayoral race. In fact, the Wisconsin Policy Forum brought it up in a debate last spring, and both Mayor Rhodes-Conway and Gloria Reyes did not necessarily propose specific solutions. Do you anticipate Madison's financial problems being a factor in future elections, either for mayor or city council members? I think right now the city's finances are largely healthy. It's more a question of what are things going to look like five years from now. I would not anticipate this being like a front burner issue in the city immediately. But again, a year from now, two years from now, four years from now, if nothing has changed, you know, if the city's costs are continuing to grow at their current rate and there's been no new source of revenue put into place for the city, then you're going to start hearing more about it and there's going to be, you know, more challenges for the city. So kind of comes down to, again, if the city leaders can find ways to cut costs or keep costs from growing as quickly, or if they can find a new source of revenue, then this issue may never come onto the front burner. But right now it's on track for that to happen. What revenue source options are available to Madison in the future? There is the option of raising certain fees for the city. So, you know, like the city has a fee on vehicles. You know, we have a $40 per vehicle registration fee. The city could choose to increase that. There are some other sort of cats and dogs as far as fees, like the urban forestry fee. And that's really it. There is really a lot of other options for the city. There are some fees within individual agencies. So Madison Metro Transit could increase fees on bus fares. But, you know, in terms of things that would just go to the city's general operations, that's sort of the extent of it. Moving on to your 2024 city budget proposal brief, can you give me an overview of your findings What were the big ticket items and what are key changes happening? You know, when the pandemic hit, it had a big impact on passenger numbers for Madison Metro Transit, on the number of people who are using city parking ramps and meters because everybody was working from home. 
and the room taxes that were collected on hotel stays in the city were way down. All those things have rebounded. They're still not recovered. You know, the room taxes in particular have recovered relatively well, but they still, even room taxes have not caught up to where they would be if they had grown with inflation based on where they were at in 2019. And parking revenue and transit ridership are also still down. And those are all sort of major parts of the city's operations. The room taxes fund a lot of efforts to support tourism in the city. You know, the parking revenues support the parking utility and the staff in that. And then, you know, Metro Transit is obviously an important part of how students and workers get around the city and is an important part of sort of the economy. In particular, for Metro Transit, you know, we have to see how that agency can be sustainably funded going forward. You know, the city is using up in 2024 the last of its federal pandemic funding, its ARPA funding. For next year, the next year's budget in, in 2025, that will be an issue, you know, re- replacing that funding. When it comes to bus rapid transit, that's one of Mayor Rhodes Conway's biggest projects. You know, this in spite right. of what you mentioned, the transit ridership and revenue still recovering from pandemic era lows. Right. Are they investing in BRT in an effort to bring those numbers up? The hope is definitely that BRT will boost ridership and that, you know, in the city and then in some suburban communities like Sun Prairie as well. The BRT plan was put in place by 2019, so it predates COVID. So it's, it's not exactly a strategy to recover from COVID, but it certainly may help with the recovery from the pandemic. You know, what we still need to see is how will transit be funded, you know, sustainably going forward. So the brief also mentioned that Madison's spending has consistently gone up over the last few years. Is that largely due to federal COVID relief funding? That's part of it. Part of the spending has been that there's just been this money available from the federal government that they've given to local governments. And so, I mean, you know, the city, it's it's use it or lose it. So it's logical that the city would be spending it. Part of what is boosting spending as well is the cost of, you know, just inflation, upward pressure on the wages of city employees. And so those are ongoing costs. Even some of the pandemic spending that we did was one time in nature. So it was just temporary programs that were put in place. And so they're not a long-term cost pressure for the city, but a big chunk of this increased spending, particularly on worker wages, is going to be, you know, an ongoing pressure for the city. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Jason. Yeah, no problem. And like I said, just holler if you need anything else. That was Jason Stein, Research Director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum. The nonpartisan research organization released a brief on Friday that outlines Madison's financial present and future with an eye on the city's 2024 budget proposal. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. This Friday, October 27th, is the anniversary of the congressional passage of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse and Prevention Act in 1970. 
The act was a key part of then-President Richard Nixon's War on Drugs, the effects of which are still felt with us today. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, October 27th, is the anniversary of the Congressional Passage of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse and Prevention Act in 1970, as part of then-President Nixon's War on Drugs. That War on Drugs, carried on and expanded by every president after him, Republican and Democrat, has ruined countless lives and caused much of the prison system expansion. About 1.3 million of the 2.3 million incarcerated people are in state prisons, most commonly for drug-related crimes. The U.S. has the world's highest prison population. Annually, over 1 million people are arrested for drug law violations. These arrests disproportionately harm people of color and the poor. Two-thirds of people support eliminating criminal penalties for drug possession, preferring a public health approach instead, says the ACLU. In 2014, a fascinating revelation came out from Dan Baum, in Harper's Magazine. He interviewed John Ehrlichman, Nixon's top domestic aide and Watergate co-conspirator in 1994. Baum was then working on a book about the politics of drug prohibition. He started asking Ehrlichman a bunch of earnestly wonky questions that Ehrlichman impatiently waved away. You want to know what this was really about? He asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace, and a stretch in federal prison, had little left to protect. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Didn't we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Baum, in an interview with CNN, said he had no reason to think that Ehrlichman was being dishonest and viewed his comments as atonement. I think Ehrlichman was waiting for someone to come and ask him. I think he felt bad about it. I think he had a lot to feel bad about, Baum concluded. This certainly matched what it felt like to many anti-war and black liberation activists at the time. Some historians of the time, though, say it was more complicated, saying Ehrlichman felt bitter and betrayed by Nixon and so may have lied. More importantly, Nixon's war on drugs consistently gave more money to treatment, education, and prevention than law enforcement and interdiction, a balance that would not occur again until the Obama administration. Nixon's first drug czar, Dr. Jerome Chaffee, who at the time of his appointment was working on improving drug addiction treatments, embraced the position worrying that there was little time before the drug war became more punitive. There was an urgency to get as much done as we could, Chaffee told a Fox reporter in 2016. The thrust of American history from the 20s on was law enforcement. And I thought, in a sense, Nixon's emphasis on treatment expansion was an aberration. Sadly, he proved correct. Nixon gave a greater focus to law enforcement in his 1972 re-election campaign. In the thinly-veiled racist Southern strategy, he linked fears of black crime and drug use among white Southerners. After his 1972 re-election, Nixon followed the lead of liberal Republican New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who proposed 
harsher prison sentences, including mandatory minimums for drug trafficking. In March 1973, Nixon copied Rockefeller proposed an increase in prison sentences, including mandatory minimums for drug use, but the proposal went nowhere in the chaos of Watergate. After Nixon, things only got worse with Reagan, Clinton, etc. In 1978, though, changes started with medical marijuana approval in New Mexico. Now, 38 states and Washington, D.C. permit medical marijuana. Since 2016, 22 states have legalized recreational pot, covering half of the nation's residents. In 2014, Ira Glasser, former head of the ACLU, said, Without marijuana, the use of drugs is negligible, and you can't justify the law enforcement and prison spending on other drugs. Their use is vanishingly small. I always thought that if you could cut the marijuana head off the beast, the drug war couldn't be sustained. That was before today's opioid crisis, but I suspect his prediction will still come true. And that is our story for today. For the Passes and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. This weekend, the Women's March hosted a three-day women's convention in Milwaukee. Christina Kivlin is a contributor on Her Turn, WORT's feminist news show that airs every Sunday morning at 11. She attended part of the women's convention and heard from a number of local advocates. My name is Rachel O'Leary Carmona. I'm the executive director of Women's March. The Women's Convention is an opportunity for us to build deep with our base. So we're known for big marches. There will be thousands. We had 2,500 people in Madison in January of this year. But this is an opportunity to kind of scale deep versus scaling big so that our folks have the skills and the connections with each other that they need to be able to move the change that they want to see moved in their communities. One of the things that we want to do in Wisconsin is just to continue to maintain a footprint and to develop a leadership base you know, for Women's March that is invested in an agenda around gender justice that we know is going to be important in the next year and beyond. So for us, it's like the, the more our folks are trained, the more our folks are connected with each other, the more that we have a community built here, the stronger that our presence can be. Whether or not you can make it to the convention, you can always go to womensmarch.com and go to our action hub and kind of get in where you fit in. And there's a lot of um, work that's happening in states all across the country, but certainly in Wisconsin, um, that folks can get involved with. So that's the place, womensmarch.com. My name is Shauna Thomas. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Ultraviolet. Ultraviolet is a feminist activist organization. We're a national organization. We run campaigns to hold media and corporations accountable for sexism. I am here at this women's convention because I want to be in community with other feminists, with other people who are in a lot of different ways, with a lot of different groups of people for a lot of different reasons, like working together to advance gender justice, to advance gender equity. And so a big part of it is just like being in community, being in relationship, deepening our relationships across organizations and strategies and approaches, and to learn. I think one thing it's really important for people to know, and I'm not sure people really see it's visible to them, is that there is a live and vibrant feminist movement in the United States. There is a political home for you, and there are a lot of different versions of that. Ultraviolet is one version of that, but lots of other organizations here, whether it's the Black Feminist Futures or the Working Families Party, organizations that are full of women advancing a feminist agenda, working to disrupt white supremacist patriarchy, there is there is a community here for you to join. And, you know, it's a matter of finding the, who your people are and what's really going to serve you and your community first. 
Hi, my name is Blair Armani. I'm the creator of Smarter in Seconds. Smarter in Seconds, what is that? Absolutely. So Smarter in Seconds answers the issue of us having shorter attention spans as a human species. And also the fact that so many people want to know what's going on in the world and want to know how to respond. What are pronouns? What is oppression? What's a Karen? What's woke? And so I explain all of that in 90 seconds or less. And it's available for free on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube Shorts. I remember back when the Women's March started, it was just a group of women who realized that there was an issue. The issue is the patriarchy. We need to speak up against it. And that was back in 2017. And since then, there's been coalition building. There's been movement work. We've experienced a pandemic. We've inspired against uh, elections and insurrection and everything in between. So the Women's March, especially happening here in Wisconsin, which is often a swing state, is a really powerful moment for us to say, hey, we're here, we're women, we're, we're literally everywhere, and we're fighting the patriarchy everywhere that it happens to be. But it's also a beautiful time to come together and laugh and have joy, because we can't just be together when we're angry. We also have to be together to have fun. I think to listeners, especially out here in Wisconsin, you know, people in LA, people in New York, they're going to try to tell you what your politics are, but you get to decide. When you're in that voting booth, you get to choose to vote your conscience. You get to vote for the underdog, for the person who doesn't have as much power as you, the much privilege as you. And those people might not ever meet you, but they will think they're lucky stars that you voted in their interest. So just remember those things. Those were voices from the 2023 Women's Convention taking place this weekend in Milwaukee. For more information, visit womensmarch.com. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new offerings on the small screen, a fun season three of the popular French gentleman thief series Lupin, and a new documentary from Chicago PBS covering two important labor stories, Pullman and the Railroad Rebellion. Se faire cambrioler est une expérience désagréable. Et ce, afin de vous éviter les allées d'une surprise J'ai pris la décision de vous prévenir à l'avance que je m'apprête à dérober votre perle noire. That was Lip from the trailer for Lupin, Season 3, of the story of the Gentleman Thief, again directed by Laudovic Bernard. This seven-part edition is highly bingeable. I watched the last three in one sitting. It doesn't hurt that each episode ends with a cliffhanger. For the uninitiated, this is a fun action series about Hassan Diop, brilliantly played by Omar Sy, with a fine ensemble cast. Diop, who's a master thief, was inspired by the original French stories by Maurice Leblanc, a series from the early 1900s that has had many versions over the years. Diop in season 1 and 2 has used his finely honed skills to steal the impossibly secure items, partly to avenge wrongs done to his father, who was framed for stealing a priceless necklace. Our story picks up with Diop living quietly abroad after his last successful outing, but it's been a year and he misses his ex Claire, Ludovine Sonia, and son Raoul, Aton Simon. So he hashes a plan for one last great heist, after which he can take Claire and Raoul off somewhere where they can live in secluded luxury. Not surprisingly, Claire is not interested. She just wants to be left alone by Diop and the media. Diop's Robin Hood legend has grown in his absence. Reporters are convinced they can find him through his ex or his son. So Diop visits his old friend and partner in crime, Benjamin Antoine Wee. Diop decides to go ahead with his plan for his latest caper, stealing the Black Pearl. Oh, and his long-lost mother enters the story. And this is another fun, plot-twisting story that keeps up the tension and the mystery until the end. But I, for one, hope we have not seen the last of Asan Diop. Lupin just started streaming on Netflix. Up next, a more serious topic, a new documentary on an important chapter in labor history. With a stubborn employer and no labor laws to protect them, workers' grievances fell on deaf ears. 
And in May of 1894, 4,000 of them walked off the job. That was a clip from the trailer for Pullman and the Railroad Rebellion. It is part of the Chicago Stories series produced by Chicago PBS. This is a pretty good documentary that covers most of the basics of the rise of George Pullman, the creator of the famous sleeping cars, his company town Pullman, and the factory workers' struggle. The Panic of 1893 caused Pullman to cut hours and wages, but not rents. Part 2 of the story covers the long road to unionization of the sleeping car porters and maids into the brotherhood of sleeping car porters. The factory workers organized and struck against Pullman. They joined and sought the aid of the newly organized American Railway Union, ARU. The documentary highlights a woman striker who attended the National ARU Convention and pled their case. The convention goers voted unanimously to support the strikers. The ARU members refused to haul any Pullman cars on the lines they controlled. The doc failed to provide the context, though, of the times and the full range of the forces against the strikers. The Panic of 1893 was the most severe depression the nation had seen up to that time. There was no safety net for the unemployed. The ARU was a new cross-trades industrial union run by the rank and file. They had won a great victory, winning their strike against the Great Northern in 1894, and a year later, the ARU had 150,000 members. The membership was confident that they could take on Pullman, despite the advice of their leadership, among them their president, Eugene Debs. The strike blocked the 10 trunk lines going out of Chicago, and strikes spread across several western states. Federal court injunctions were imposed at the behest of the railroad owners. Violence only occurred after federal troops were called in, and rumors of martial law spread across the city. The violence was against railroad property by immigrants and the unemployed, not by the strikers themselves. Debs and the leadership were arrested on conspiracy. In the end, an estimated 34 people were killed, and federal and state troops had been called out in Nebraska, Iowa, Colorado, Oklahoma, California, and Illinois. The strike ended in defeat for the workers because of the intervention of the federal government. Interestingly, one of the talking heads, without citing evidence, felt that Pullman might have changed his ways, but died just two years after the strike. Meanwhile, the lives of the workers suffered a sharp setback. Debs himself, another point now mentioned in the doc, emerged from prison a socialist. He went on to lead the Socialist Party and helped form the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW. The second part of the doc, on the development of the Brotherhood of Sipping Car Porters, did a good job of talking about conditions of the workers, their organizing efforts, their important place as leaders of the Civil Rights Movement, and the key leadership of A. Philip Randolph. But a better documentary on the subject is A. Philip Randolph for Jobs and Freedom, or the 2002 Robert Townsend film, 10,000 Black Men Named George. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.48 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's edition of Forward Lookout, feature contributors Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan give us the rundown on the government's calendar. 
On the line is Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com to help us preview what's happening this week in local government. Hi, Brenda. Hey, Dylan. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. Well, Good. Let, yeah, let's dive into Dane County. And uh, they have a meeting happening right now of the Personnel and Finance Committee. So lots going on with the budget, but what are they talking about specifically tonight? Yeah, tonight is more of their uh, regular meeting that they would normally have. Um, they will be going over Board of Health amendments and their own Personnel and Finance Committee amendments. But then they have other meetings later this week as well. So tonight they'll they'll actually be looking at the typical kind of stuff where they're approving contracts and exceptions and waivers and bills and all that type of stuff. A couple of things that might be of interest is they have the Affordable Housing Development Fund Awards on there. They also have some consulting work for the, the airport. I know some folks are interested in that. And then they are looking at their own uh, pay. They have to raise it before the elections. And so they're looking at that. And then they are also going to be, I think, starting to look at how to put together all the budget amendments that they have. Okay. Is there a lot of room in the county budget for those amendments? I know with the city, just not a lot of room. I think the county board had a little bit more to work with than what the city council did. And I think they, in advance, tried to give some people some guidelines about like health and human needs can spend this much money and this committee can spend this much money. So I think they, they tried to organize it a little bit better than it has been in the past. Oh, Kitty wants to say something. <laughs> Tuesday at 5.30, we have the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. And I see one thing that they're discussing is an agreement to house relocated Dane County jail residents at Iowa County Jail. So I believe that's a, a new county that they, they might be sending jail residents to. So that's up for discussion. And, and what else? Um, the other things are a little bit more routine. Um, they are looking at purchasing the Village of Windsor Municipal Building for the... Um, sheriff's office they have a northeast precinct and they are also um, looking at some hazardous materials grants well we just got done talking about them at 5 30 tuesday the personnel and finance committee is back is this the big budget meeting they're having yes they have this meeting and then they have one again the following night on wednesday as well so on tuesday they will be talking about the environment agriculture and natural resources committee items which sometimes is called ener They'll also be talking about the Public Works and Transportation, Zoning, Executive Committee, and County Clerk Budget Amendments. So they'll be looking at all of those amendments. And then the next night, they'll be looking at public protection and judiciary, so all of the criminal justice system, and then also health and human needs. So that's that's a huge portion of the budget in, in on Wednesday night. All right. Also Tuesday, we have the Public Works and Transportation Committee. And they're having a hybrid meeting there, um, also meeting at the Alliant Energy Center. So I would say the the big one for here is that new election center, right? Is that looks like that's moving right along? Yep, yep. They have that on their agenda as well as that also the purchase for the sheriff's northeast precinct thing. And then they also, you know, have just some of the regular items on their agenda. All right, let's move on to the city of Madison. The finance committee, they're taking up amendments uh, to the city's budget. Yeah. What can you tell us about the finance committee that started work today at 430? So they had a bunch of uh, personnel items on there and some labor agreements and some changes to ordinances that impact employees in the employee benefits handbook. So if you're a city of Madison employee, you certainly will be interested in, in those types of things. And then they also have, they're going to be selling property at 405 West Gorham Street, little postage stamp, little piece of property that's going to allow for some affordable housing because the city will have some interest in it. 
They're looking at uh, consultant services for the Lake Monona waterfront, and then they will be, again, getting onto the budget. And again, uh, those amendments came out on Friday, and they're linked on the website, but there's not a whole lot of time for the public to have input into those. Tuesday, 4.30, the Water Utility Board is meeting at the Water Utility Building, and they're going to be getting some reports, it looks like. Yep, they have several of their usual reports on water quality, water production, finance conditions, operations, but then also they'll be getting a status report on the PFAS settlements, so that may be of interest to some folks. Yeah, a lot. they're spending a lot of money to get that PFAS off, and it hasn't even started yet, but we'll keep you updated on that. Okay, we also have on Wednesday at 5 p.m. the Transportation Commission. They're getting ready for... Bus rapid transit, it looks like. They are. Um, the one that's uh, they're working on right now that you see construction all over the city for is the uh, east-west bus rapid transit, but they are going to be looking at the north-south bus rapid transit. So they're going to be talking about a public involvement plan and, and uh, looking at some of the plans for that. And then they are also going to be looking at Metro Transit's going to have an onboard survey. So if people are riding the bus, I'm sure they have some things to say about how the new system is working out for them. And then they have the 2024 bikeways report on the different projects that they're going to be working on for that. So let me workshop a Halloween costume idea I had for a Madison-related costume idea for Halloween. Halloween's coming up, right, Brenda? Mm Mm-hmm. So I I don't quite got the conceptualness down on it, but uh, the basic idea is bus rabid transit. (laughs) <laughs> and what are you going to wear? Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I was, yeah. You weren't quite there yet, huh? <laughs> I'm not quite there, and I don't know how to get it there, but just thought I'd throw that out there. Just some shark teeth. Yeah, just a big bus, I guess, is the costume. So, anyway. <laughs> At 5 p.m., we have, uh, this is also Wednesday, we have the Vending Oversight Committee, and they are meeting virtually. So, what can you tell us about that? Well, they have their 2023 food cart review results, so... Uh, that will help determine where various food carts are placed. They're also going to be looking at their late night vending planning, and they have some updates there. And they're making a few updates to the ordinance that controls what they do. It seems like some of them are, are relatively minor. All right. Well, let's wrap up today with um, uh, on Friday, we have the Police Civilian Oversight Board meeting at the Madison Municipal Building at 5 p.m. So we have an independent monitor that was important to you know, getting that office up and a, a big role is played between the independent monitor and this oversight board. You, you, don't, you don't hear a lot about this office yet. So I guess uh, if you have any thoughts about that, I'd love to hear them. Otherwise, what are they talking about this week? Yeah, I really wanted to be able to click on that independent monitor report and see once what the report was, but there's nothing in that link. So that was a little frustrating. And also for the police civilian oversight board, oftentimes I can't find the agendas when I'm looking for them. So so I'm hoping maybe they get a little bit more uh, transparent as they move along. Looks like they're still working on some pretty basic uh, things about their committee. They're going to be talking about their attendance p- policy and the stipends that they receive. And they're going to be talking about outreach to community organizations. So um, they're still sort of working on some of the core things that they need to do to be functional as a committee. Brenda Conkle from forwardlookout.com. If you want to know more about what's happening this week in local government, we encourage you to check out forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. You're welcome, Dylan. Can't wait to see your Halloween costume. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. 
Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production, plus Christina Kivlin from WORT's Her Turn and Mike Moran from Wisconsin News Connection. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcasts. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.